It's uh, Sunday and Sunday after Easter. That's good. Two of you know that, which is awesome. <clears throat> the Sunday after Easter is an interesting Sunday because we sort of have this crescendo, you might say. There's two holy seasons in the Christian calendar, at least the ones that our culture recognizes most, Christmas and Easter. And it's ironic that there's sort of this this sort of crescendo buildup to both these holidays. And then we notice, uh, without question year after year, that the desire of the world that we live in to sort of sort through, pray about, question the things, the, the nature of spirituality. And it's, when I say spirituality in, in our church, what I mean is our understanding of who Jesus is and who or what he desires of us. How do we know him and, and grow in him? There is often a bit of a waning reality that takes place. And so for these next weeks, through the rest of this month, I wanted to take some time just to sort of parallel to a certain degree what's actually happening in the scripture post-Easter. Because for a lot of people, Easter is the end of a season. But if you understand what took place on Easter Sunday and the reality of how it shaped Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus was not the end of a story. It was the beginning of a whole new chapter of life in the kingdom of God, the one that we presently exist in today. And so today we're studying the story of Doubting Thomas in John chapter 20. And I say that this is a timely passage to look at the week after Easter because it's one of those passages that really strikes at the humanity of what's going on post-resurrection of Jesus. It's a passage that really resonates with people because it deals with the problem of doubting God. Remember, just like today, there were folks who had heard about the resurrection, many who had even seen it in the first century world, who had questions about it. They sort of didn't get their heads and their hearts wrapped around it. Folks believed and there were folks that denied and everything in between those two poles. And so the days following Jesus' resurrection were filled with skeptics finding faith in Christ. That's one of the themes of the New Testament. And I thought it pretty fitting to follow that narrative of Scripture in the same way today. And so I want you to think about doubt for a minute. The name of my sermon is Easter Plus One. It's a new way to believe. And the simple, simple idea of this is that the resurrection gave us a whole new sort of, I don't want to say format, and I don't mean new meaning like God reinvented something, but you might say that the way we believe changed radically. It evolved into something very dynamic, something very different than what most people had expected and wanted. And central to belief is the idea that we, we doubt things. Obviously, the greatest enemy of belief is doubt. And so I want you to think about this. If you are a Christian and have followed Jesus for some time, no Christian in their right mind wants to doubt Jesus. You know, we don't, we don't place our faith in him and desire to love him. We don't pray prayers that ask God to help us doubt more. That's just not the nature of what Christianity is. But if we're going to be honest as people, at times, we all find ourselves doing just that when it comes to trusting in his promises. Maybe for some of you, the resurrection was a high point of your month. And then all of a sudden, your week got very hard. And all the reality of the things that we sang about last week with a packed house full of energy, the reality of this is, tr is troubling. The promises that we declare with our lips, we often don't sense the reality of those things in our hearts. And so we find ourselves in this position. It's an interesting position. It's the position Thomas is in here. Thomas is somebody who has known Jesus, at least in the earthly sense. And what he does here is in a moment where he has incredible doubt in his faith, he, starts, he doubts Jesus and he demands something in order to believe. He wants to believe Jesus is real, but the only way to do that, in his mind, is to ask Jesus to prove himself. In other words, he says, listen, if you, if you want me to believe you're real, even though he's walked with him for some time, then you have to prove that to me. I'll stop doubting when you make yourself more real to me. And that's why this passage is so important. Because it's one of the most dramatic stories of Jesus physically appearing to a Christian, a person who is in relationship with him already, seriously doubting him like this after the resurrection. 
John 20 picks up after it happened. And the sole purpose of this teaching gives us some, a, prof, it's a profound truth that I think most of us, if we have had a faith in Jesus for some time, we will absolutely, in a cognitive way, believe this. We will affirm this. But the reality of our hearts buying into this is a different story. What this passage teaches us is that we don't need a physical experience anymore to believe in Jesus, to be blessed by him. In fact, the nature of the New Testament is something very different than that. The New Testament teaches us that the, fa- the fact of having faith and we defined faith last week as trusting in someone or something, right? In the Christian faith, that someone is Jesus. Faith simply means that to trust in Jesus the way the Scripture teaches us to is actually more real, this is what the New Testament teaches us, than if Jesus were physically sitting here today. If he got up and said, hey, I'm real, what he's saying is it's actually more beneficial for our faith and followership of him to get to the place where Thomas gets in this passage. And so the main thing I want to share with you today, there are two ideas we'll kick around. The foundational truth of this is a simple one, but it's one that can often be very difficult for us to wrap our hearts around. Jesus wants us to have the type of faith where we learn to trust him without having to see him. That is what the essence of faith is. It's not a blind leap of ignorance. I said that last week. It's actually getting to the place where we have enough confidence in Jesus Christ in our lives in our circumstances, and whatever that is going on in our lives, we have enough trust in him to where we don't have to demand things from him. We don't need to barter with God any longer. We no longer have to say, hey God, I'll believe this, or I'll trust this, or I'll follow you if you do fill in the blank. The nature of what's happening with Thomas here is just that. And Jesus, in a very loving way, corrects the, the faultiness of this way of belief. And I want to reread to you John chapter 20, verses 24 through 25. This is the, where we derive these ideas. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So what's happening is is all of the disciples at this point have pretty much seen the risen Jesus, except for Thomas. And so the other disciples, John tells us, told him, we've seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I, I just will not believe. So you have this contrasting thing going on. The disciples have seen the risen Jesus. And they go to their best bro, who has also walked with the pre-risen Jesus. And he does not believe that what Jesus said was going to happen, happened. And it creates this dialogue we're talking about right now about doubt. Now before we get into the narrative, I want to talk a little bit about doubt. The reason people have such a hard time trusting without seeing which is the nature of doubt, is because the human heart's default, default posture is to doubt God. And think about this. The sort of normal posture most people have in life is to be somewhat doubting and a little bit skeptical. And this is very true when it comes to Christianity. That's why every one of us, if we're in Jesus, has a faith story. We have a place in life where our doubts often are different. The questions we have about God are usually very diverse. But the root of the questions are all the same. And please hear me. When I speak about doubt in this room, I'm not speaking about it in a negative way. I'm not saying doubt is a bad thing. I'm actually saying doubt is a, it's a necessary element of faith. To overcome doubt is how we grow in Jesus. And if you have followed Jesus, or frankly, just lived on this earth for any amount of time, you know there are always things to be doubtful about. Where does the income come from? Will I make my next house payment? What about my kids? Fill in the blank. Hurricanes. You know, we've had a sort of a shotgun blast of those over the past couple of years. There are always things to be doubtful of. And the nature of humanity is not always to be confident in overcoming doubt. We usually have to work to that place. And so here, what we see is the default posture, even for a person who who walked with Jesus, is to sort of doubt what he said. 
This is somewhat of an irrational behavior when it comes to Thomas. Because if we were talking, you know, talking about this post-game and believing or affirming the resurrection, it's probably very easy for us to judge Thomas for this attitude. But what I want to say is that this is a more common attitude than we might expect. And if we're okay with recognizing it and asking God to speak into it, it can actually become a rhythm that God works powerfully through. Thomas is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. In verse 25, that's what we read. This is a man who devoted his life to trusting Christ's promises. He was not a new kid on the block here. Yet in this moment, he's found himself totally doubting Jesus' resurrection. And he's totally discredited the trustworthiness of his closest friends in the process. He doesn't just doubt Jesus here. He doubts his friends. And that's substantial. Because in the Christian faith, when we have doubts or issues or concerns, we're really big on community here because it's a biblical theme. What we say is that oftentimes the way we overcome doubt, the way we grow in Jesus, is by having a a, a relational network of people whom we can bring these things to. We can literally see and hear Jesus in the voice and the actions of our friends. So Thomas here has not only denied Jesus at this point, but he's thrown a complete bucket of cold water on his friends. His fellow disciples come to him and they share this eyewitness testimony that they'd seen the risen Jesus. The interesting thing here about the Greek is that it actually tells us they were like repeatedly telling him. They're like jacked up and excited. It wasn't just like a, you know, a loose text message here or a colloquial conversation. They were excited and saying like, you cannot believe what happened. Like we saw him. It, it happened, Thomas. It's real. They're going on and on. Think about this, about the empty tomb, all the people that interacted with this, the bodiless bandages, how they'd seen him, how Mary had seen him, how people everywhere were starting to see him. They got goosebumps on their arms. Yet despite this fact, despite the info, despite the fact that these are his closest and most trustworthy friends, Thomas's response is to not believe. He refuses to believe. Now put yourself in this situation. Let's say like Thomas, okay, you are personally following Jesus and seeing all that he did while he was alive. And then, like Thomas, your 10 most trusted friends who have also followed Jesus at great expense to their own life for three years, they come to you and they start telling you this. If that number of proven friends all came to you in unison declaring that Jesus was alive, from the outside looking in, we would say, man, we should at least give these folks the benefit of the doubt. But ironically, that's not the case. Despite all the existing evidence, Despite the deep level of trust and friendship, Thomas still demands more proof from them. And his demand is a very clear one. He doesn't even demand to see Jesus. He says, I need to see the hole in his hand. I'll only believe that this happened, not only if I see him, but if I see a hole in his hand. Then I'll know that he really went to the cross and he really came out of the tomb. That's profound. Profound in sort of a bad way. Thomas shows us that his doubt isn't necessarily about about Jesus and a lack of evidence. Because at this point, this story is sort of spreading like fire through the community they live in. It's rooted into like a spiritually illogical refusal to receive this great amount of truth, this evidence that's already been presented to him. In other words, there's already a quorum of information, of things that have happened, a, a history, we might say, with God that should already cause him to believe. But he doesn't. This is often true with us, right? Sometimes we question what's going to happen today. Can God fill in the blank? But if we will look back in our histories, we'll see there's already a pretty strong pedigree of God making good on his promises. Now, I'll say this every time I talk about promises because it's important. Oftentimes, the way God fulfills his promises are very different than the way we expect them to be fulfilled. You know, when we think about God working, we all have our, our sort of prefixed imaginations. We all have in our head the way it should work. And sometimes it does work that way. 
But a lot of times it doesn't. A lot of times God works in ways that are very different. He's fulfilling his promise with a different picture of how that actually happens in his head. And in the Bible, you'll find that there are many stories of people doubting God on the same grounds. And certainly in our world today, because in our culture, we tend to value pessimism and skepticism much more than optimism, hope, and trust. That, that first part of the scale is often more influential and applied to this. And i give you a good example of this. There's a really well-known atheist. If you don't know what an atheist is, this is simply a person that believes, ironically, based on my sermon last week, everybody believes in something. They believe there is no chance, no possibility, or at least a very small possibility, that a God could be real. And even if he was, they wouldn't affirm him or her, whatever the atheist believes. This is an interesting idea, okay? Because there's a really well-respected atheist who's passed away now, and it's sad because he was truly, I think, the greatest atheist there was who ever walked the planet Earth. His name was Christopher Hitchens. And he was interviewed years ago before his death in a very popular Christian magazine called Outreach Magazine. The idea was Outreach Magazine is essentially written to help churches understand how to engage their world. And so one of the ways they were trying to equip churches was to talk about folks who vehemently disbelieved the fact that God could be real. And they asked him in an interview, series of questions, but it sort of culminated here. They said, what if anything would it take for you to believe in God? And he said, quoting, nothing, nothing you could do or say would actually make me believe that the narrative of God in the Bible, the narrative of Jesus is real. Not the historical Jesus. They believe, you know, he believed that he was a real person, but he did not believe at all the claims that he made. Nothing. He said, even if the Virgin Mary and Jesus himself showed up in my living room, I would deem them both a hallucination. That's what he said. Too much tea. It's an interesting statement. Uh, just like Thomas's response reveals a, a, an interesting heart attitude that people deal with. The Bible warns us of regularly. Sometimes our heart can mislead us. And in this case, you have two forms of bias that are prohibiting somebody from believing. They're not even willing to explore the facts. When Thomas, well known for his cynicism and skepticism, that's sort of who he is known for, what he's known for, when he doubts Jesus, it's not because there's a lack of things going on that can support there actually being a resurrected Jesus. There's plenty. John tells us that. With Hitchens, we see that even if he was presented with physical proof, like even, even if he said, even if you bring him to me and his mom, if you put his mom in front of me, I wouldn't believe you. And it's messed up. Like maybe deny Jesus, but don't deny Jesus' mom, right? Messed up. Like, how could you distrust his mom? What does she have to lose here? There's nothing that's going to sway this guy. He's not even willing to examine the fact that they're in front of him. Now, what's my point here? Both men here show us a significant heart attitude. Doubt for some people is not based on needing more evidence. This was the story of the Pharisees. They were always saying, Jesus, do something to show us who you say you are. And then when he would do it, they would say, Jesus, do something else to show us who you say you are. The issue wasn't that Jesus was not true. The issue was that they just didn't want to hear that truth. It's a challenging reality. This is not a problem of evidence. It's a problem of fallen will. And I want to talk about that for a little bit. It's a problem of our hearts, a deep-rooted problem in our hearts. The past and present story of Christianity shows us, for some people in this world, it's not a matter of, of whether or not they can believe in Jesus. It's more that they just don't want to believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter how reliable or abundant the sources are, how many people have stories about the way God has worked in their lives. Some of the historical and global evidence for Christianity being far more than just a myth, you know, it's, it's reshaped the whole world. For some people, that's just not enough because they just don't want to receive it. They don't care. There's a hard-heartedness there that, that sort of pushes this away. 
And even if Jesus was really standing in front of them, they would be blind to that reality. That's what Christopher Hitchens teaches us. He's just blind to it. He's got no desire to see it. And we can say this confidently because it's already happened. I mean, I want you to think about this. We demand, many of us today, Jesus to physically reveal himself, whatever that looks like. We, we, ex- we expect him to you know, answer a prayer or do something for us. And if he does that for us, then we'll believe that he's real. But what's ironic is that he's already done a great many of these things. Remember, the physical Jesus did work, walk the world. He became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He's answered an incredible host of prayers, ones that cosmically changed the world, dying for our sins and resurrecting. And in our lives, if you follow Jesus for some time, you all have stories of God working in your life in this way. Yet still, with that sort of quorum of reality in our lives, we often doubt Jesus. We doubt that he is who he says he is. We doubt that he can do what he says he does. And the whole reason we have a Bible, you know, this really tangible evidence of God's movement changing the world, the church, leading up to this very moment, we're part of that movement that we're experiencing together right now, is because Jesus did show up and he has done what he said he would do. And so doubting Jesus is seldom due to a lack of God showing up, God being real to us, God evidencing himself to us, we might say. It's usually due to a person not sufficiently examining what God has already done, the gracious way he's already made himself known to them, the presence he's offered them in his life. What I'm saying here is sometimes you have to do a little bit of a study of history in your own life to believe that God is still present and active in your life today. People like this who act like this, they tend to do so because simply put, they have a heart that refuses to see God on any level. That's the challenge. Is it's not that God isn't visible or making himself known. It's just that they, they've decided for whatever reasons this is a truth they don't want to embrace. And there are lots of truths like this in life. There are lots of times when we sort of know a lingering truth is out there. You know, the way we treat our bodies today might have substantial consequences tomorrow. We know that's true, but yet we sort of act like it isn't true. We, we don't want to embrace that reality. This is not just a Jesus thing. It's a human thing. This is an important truth to think about this morning, especially if you struggle with doubting Jesus. Because the Bible says seeking Jesus on some level is prerequisite to finding him. In other words, if you want to see Jesus, at the very least, you have to say, it would be really interesting to see what it would be like to explore whether or not he is who he says he is. If you come to the table saying, even if his mom showed up, I wouldn't buy into this, it's over for you. That's the reality. Or if you're so sort of like drowned out in a promise, you're waiting for God to fulfill that you can't sense, you don't think he can, the same rings true here. If you don't believe God can do this, God can make a change in your life. God can address a circumstance. God can give you peace or hope through a circumstance. If you don't get to that place where you at least say, God, I doubt, but I don't want to, you will never actually see or experience what we're talking about here. And that's why seeking, I say, can be a bit of a, it's sort of a funny thing. Because some people in life clearly know they're looking for Jesus. That happens. There are people who sort of recognize who he is and they want to follow him while others are searching for something else entirely different to satisfy their souls when they actually stumble upon him. They're looking for A, whatever A is, and they find Jesus. The seeking, though, is what is important because God reveals himself in that. The bottom line here is that the Bible says if you want to find God, you have to at least be open to the idea of exploring who he is, who he says he is through Christ. You have to be willing to honestly (coughs) and objectively weigh the facts and see where God leads you to. The problem with belief is that most people never get to the place of belief because they refuse to accept the responsibility to seek. They get so wrapped up in the doubt that they actually no longer have a desire 
to grow in what it means to trust. They tend to have major issues and even some stereotypes about Jesus and the faith that keep them from actually examining Jesus for the first time or growing in him. And I want to give you three examples this morning of the sort of common stress points that we have. I think it's pretty fair to say that these stress points sort of shape every decision we make in life. In other words, there's single ideas that have tons of strings hanging from them because they make up the way God has designed us. Now, some people won't examine Jesus, they won't seek, because they struggle with some form of an intellectual skepticism. This would be the story of the hardened atheist. They'll say things like, I won't examine Jesus because the idea of trusting God is exactly what we talked against last week. It's ridiculous and even dangerous. Now, I want to preface what I'm about to say with this. To a certain degree, desiring to ask deep and meaningful questions about the Christian faith before giving, you shouldn't give your life to anything before you ask questions and really investigate it. So this attitude and its outset can actually be a good thing, but it oftentimes becomes very unhealthy. So we're not talking about blindly trusting into anything here. If this is you, please know Jesus doesn't ask you to take a blind leap of faith off of a cliff into the dark. The whole message last week, rather he asks you to take a single step of faith beyond what you can already see. So a lot of times, folks that actually haven't done any real research, they haven't done any real looking into faith, they'll, you know, hear something on a television show or hijack an idea or sort of character, character, make a character of Christianity. They'll stereotype it in very broad ways. They've actually not done the work that many of us have done to actually recognize how substantive our faith is. They don't look at the history of God's work in the world. They don't look at the history of his history in the world. They don't realize that some of the beliefs people have about God and Christ in our culture, they might be common and popular beliefs, but they might not necessarily be biblical beliefs. They they doubt the credibility of Jesus in every way because they basically say, you can't write a term paper about him and defend him in three points and make me believe. What I want to say here is that Christianity or following Jesus is not an invitation for you to believe in and worship an invisible flying cosmic meatball. This is sort of what atheists have literally said about Christianity. The the heady types, they've said, I can't disprove that there's a cosmic flying meatball in the world. You can worship that. I want to say, as a guy who really loves meatballs and thinks that it's awesome that they be cosmic and flying, I would would love meatballs to fly into my living room on a regular basis. What what an inconsistency here, right? What What a challenge to say flying meatballs are the same thing as a credible man who did something that changed the world. undeniably and categorically changed the world. So as a person who bends towards the head, that's no secret about me, and that's where a lot of my questions were at the front end of this, I can tell you some of my own biases here were just wrong. I was so biased that I was not willing to explore beyond my bias, and that's why I had a much later conversion in life. I was in my mid-20s. I'm not saying that's wrong, because God works in our lives in different ways, but what I am saying is, Make sure you're biased, or if you're engaging a person that, that sort of is bent from this, you know, the meatball world, do not let the bias trump the reality of fact. At some point, you, have to, you even have to be sort of intelligent about the facts. You can't just have a bias. And so for some people, they just cannot wrap their head around the fact that Jesus is real and did what he said. Some people won't examine Jesus because they struggle with a moral skepticism. And I would say, out of the three I'm sharing with you today, 
This is probably the biggest one. It's, it's sort of amazing watching the way our world has changed over the past 20 years. I think about 15 or 20 years ago, I would even go so far as to say maybe 10 or 12 years ago, the key thing we were debating was the intellectual reality of God. We were talking a lot about could God be real, all this high-end philosophy. The atheist movement was strong. Now people are beyond that. And what I would say is you have a great many people in the world today that won't examine Jesus and the Christian faith because they feel like Christianity is essentially handing you an outdated set of morals. What they're saying is like, the stuff you guys believe was great like 6,000 years ago, but we live in the modern world now. We're very progressive in our ideas. These thoughts are, are sophisticated, but what you believe is ancient and silly. Who are you? Here's the question. Forget what the do is, but the question is, who are you to say what I should and should not do? Because it's my life. And as Christians, we have had to answer that question. And if you understand what Jesus tells us to and not to do, it changes things. If you've really followed Jesus, I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying the posture of desiring to do what Jesus says to and not to do actually becomes a joy at some point. It's not just a rigid moral he hands you, though the Bible has those. The morals are always shaped by an understanding, a revelation, we would even say, of who God is. God's character is meant to be revealed through the way that we live. And to follow Jesus means we desire to live like him. And so to a certain degree, the person that says, that's just some outdated old school stuff, they, they sort of have a healthy bend at the outset of what they question. That person rightly understands that a belief in Jesus means they're going to have to follow him. They just don't agree with how. And I would say that that's, maybe in this case what's happened is that person has counted the cost and they've just said no. Now, we, we pray for a different outcome, but there is a root healthiness in this. So I want to say something about this. Some of this concern, some of this objection actually can be true. One of the realities of coming to faith in Christ means, I like to use this analogy a lot because I think it's good. When you think of the sun and the stars and the planets, the sun is the center of our universe and we all sort of orbit around it. The same is true with Jesus. If you think about the, like we don't question the fact that the earth isn't any less significant because it, it revolves around the sun. The same is true with our morality in Jesus. To make him the sun and orbit our lives around it gives us a different level of significance. It's, you have to look at it a different way. It doesn't mean that we're less valuable in God's eyes. It just means that our morality, our lives, our emotions, we'll get to that in a moment, our spirituality, our brains, they all revolve around Jesus. And that actually provides a greater value and worth to us. Because we're at this place in life where we're beginning to live in the way that God has set us apart to. We're sort of reclaiming the fallen nature of who we are. The cross says, hey, you're redeemed, holy. But sanctification says day after day we are migrating, becoming more like Jesus in what we do. And this includes the way we live. And I mean in all areas, our time, our generosity with money, the way we serve in our church, the way we bless our neighbor. Morality has no end in the Christian faith. And I'm telling you, a great amount of it is not outdated. A great many of the movements in our culture today are trying to have this perfect type of living. They just can't seem to get there. And we know why we can't get there. Because we're only going to get there when Jesus once and for all rids the world of sin permanently and restores the world to the way it was meant to be. I love how Paul talks about this. There are two loose references I want to give you in this section. When he talks about living, godly living. In 1 Timothy, a major theme of that book is that a Christian should genuinely derive and ultimate contentment from living a godly life. If we see it as an obligatory chore, it's not a joy. And what Paul is telling us is, listen, Jesus did what he did so that you could derive joy from doing what he does. 
right? The heart is made right with God. But then eventually we begin to live like God. And when you live like God, the, the idea of spiritual gifts, using our gifts and abilities for God, the body literally lives as if Jesus does. This is why it's important that we all recognize who we are and that God has put us on, per, on a mission together with him and for him. Because when we all use our gifts and serve him, when our morality lines up with him, we, we reflect the complete image of Jesus. None of us can do that on our own, but we can do it in these little bodies we call churches. It's amazing when you think about it that way. And this is where I say, this, this is sort of where this stereotype needs a correction. Coming to faith, you can't just equate it to getting a replacement set of morals. That created a whole heresy in the Christian church 50 years ago called moralism. And eventually what happened is people started thinking like, I can live right without Jesus. And I'm telling you, you can't live right without Jesus. We live right because of Jesus. So we're not against the morals. We're just really for recognizing that our righteousness is found in the fact of what we just celebrated. People often see Christianity this way for a few reasons. I'll just give you two quick ones. The first is that most of the major world faiths are like this. They almost all have this do this, get this mentality. So Christianity, if we don't know how to articulate what we believe and live in a way that reflects what we believe, what happens is Christianity is considered one of the great world religions. And people just start thinking like, well, all the other ones say, like, if you act like this, you, you might find God, then yours must be the same way. What we're saying is, no, actually, you start acting like that when God finds you, when God reaches out of heaven and grabs your heart and begins working in your life in a way that you can just, you, you just start loving him. That's what I'm saying here. The morality follows. And I will tell you that at times, even Christianity has been communicated as a graceless, judgmental set of rigid rules. That certainly exists today. Thankfully, we're seeing less of that. But nonetheless, that's out there. And this is why understanding biblical truth about truth when it comes to this is important. God never designed our faith to be something that reminds us of how bad we are while simultaneously denying you joy in life. Those are not Jesus' last words on the cross. And Paul addresses this again. It's a fallacy in 1 Timothy. When he says he uses his own life, he says, God saved him, the worst of sinners as an example, so the world could see God's patience and grace with those who are sinners. The story of the gospel is that God is working in our lives to bring about a different result. And part of that result is that we're going to live differently. We're going to look differently. And we're going to understand that our lives are not the sun. Our lives are the planets that orbit around the sun, S-O-N, Jesus. And the greatest tension most of us find in Christianity is this. We essentially want to follow Jesus without him at the center of our life. And that is just a road that's going to create a lot of conflict and tension. And eventually it's going to create a life that is less robust, less abundant than the way Jesus wants you to have or the life Jesus wants you to have. And so listen, if you're here today refusing to deepen your faith in Jesus or you have folks in your life who just will not address these issues, they just can't understand, like even our understanding of marriage, like forever, you know, we feel like that's a big important thing in scripture forever. That's what we're aiming for anyways, right? If you don't understand that or if you just sort of bludgeon people to death when that ideal is not met in the world, when the fallen nature of that pollutes what God wants, what happens is people won't see God trying to restore those things. People won't sense grace in the places where we failed him. They'll sense judgment and rigidity, and that will drive people away from God. If you get one thing about what I'm saying here, it's this. We get the cart before the horse if we try to get our morals in line with Jesus before we have our hearts in line with Jesus. We live this way because Jesus lives in us. And so we invest in our pursuit of him. We wrestle with those things. And we let Jesus then examine the morality of our life. 
Because Christian morality won't make any sense to you without Jesus. It just can't. Because it's his morality. So we start with him. We start with belief. We start with addressing the bias. And we say, look, if living like fill in the blank is the thing keeping me from finding Jesus, why don't we ask the questions or be able to answer the questions that people have when they want to know why we live like this? Because that's where the root of belief takes form. When you can explain, well, here's why we think this is important. Jesus, fill in the blank, did this. And here's why I do this. That's a much different way to shepherd the morality of a person's heart with the power of Jesus as opposed to just trying to essentially be like Jesus without his power and authority. We don't have an Easter or even need one if this was the case. So some people's heads keep them from following Jesus. Some people's hearts keep them from following Jesus. Excuse me, some, some people's uh, sort of mo- the morality issue keeps them from following Jesus. And then lastly, there's an issue of the human heart, the emotional side of life. Some people won't examine Jesus because they struggle with an emotional skepticism. And if you're wondering why I gave you these three categories, it's because God has created these three things in us. We are people with brains and hearts that are deep. They really, really, really shape our lives. And we have hands. Our head, our hearts, and our hands are the construct of the way God designed us. And the heart right now is what I want to talk about. And so this is the person who finds it painful, maybe even impossible, to trust in anyone because they feel that few people, if any, are actually trustworthy in life. You know, maybe you've been hurt or abused. Maybe you've made this connection that to trust Christ uh, means you're going to put yourself in a position of vulnerability with him. And that's very true. You don't give your life to somebody without there being a vulnerability there. And you just said, you know, I've been vulnerable before, and that has never worked out well for me. So it's just too risky. I don't need to invite another person into my life that's going to take advantage of me and hurt me. And so you start wrestling with this emotional skepticism. And what I want to say here is, is a handful of things. I'm going to be brief, but I want you to hear importance in my brevity. If this is the way you believe, if this is keeping you from knowing or growing in Jesus, or you have people in your lives that are struggling with this, this is a really terrible way to live. It's, it is actually short-selling the way God has designed you to be. Now, hear my heart here. In no way am I trying to undermine the significance and pain of past hurts. There's a reason people sort of embrace this posture. A lot of times it's protecting themselves. So I'm, I'm not saying that this is not an, it's an unjustified behavior. I'm just saying that's not the end game for you. At least it shouldn't be. If you've chosen to deal with those hurts by building emotional walls around your heart designed to keep people out, you're, you're going to be miserable. It's not possible in life to have the kind of joy and vibrancy God wants you to have if you don't have it in Jesus with other people because you weren't created to live like that. You were designed to live in a loving relationship with God and other people. And that's important to know. It's not the end. It might be a coping mechanism for a season, but it's not what God wants for the rest of your life. And second, I would say, here's where the first thing I said really matters. If you actually understand scripture, you know that Jesus has already made a promise that he will never treat you like that. He will never take advantage of you like that. In fact, he wants access to your heart because he can heal you of that pain. So take him at his word and stop doubting with your emotions. You start trusting. I promise Christ can correct. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying Christ can correct even the emotional abuses that we've had in our past. And he can paint a new picture of what that looks like. But you'll never get to that place of healing if you actually deny the fact that Christ even has the authority to do that. Now, what I want to say here is that I've mentioned three big categories. And every single one of them has a, a string that dangles from it. There's all, uh, there's all kinds of things that actually fall out of that. There's all kinds of applications. 
And as we start to wrap up this morning, I, I don't want to address any more of the negative stuff. I don't want to address the oppositions, the things that keep us from seeing Jesus. What I want to do is really spend a few minutes talking about what it means to, when we stop doubting and start believing, or at least we take the step. Because when you do believe without seeing, this is where Thomas ends up. Jesus says he will richly bless you because of it. That's the promise. Belief without having to put your, your finger in Jesus' nail-scarred hands creates a different type of faith in our lives. And I'll reread to you John 20, 27 through 29. Here's what happens. Then he said to Thomas, this is Jesus. He gives him the courtesy. He obliges his wish. Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Feel where the spear went. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, only after touching him, my Lord and my God. In other words, belief. There's a declaration of Jesus, you are who you say you are. Then Jesus told him, here's the key. Because you've seen me, you've believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He draws a little bit of a distinction here between belief, at least the way we believe. Now, in order to understand how you can experience God's blessing, you must first understand what Jesus means by blessing. Because this is one of those words that's greatly confused in our culture. The word used here is repeatedly used in other places of the Bible. And the best place to sort of parallel it is in the Beatitudes. The idea in the Beatitudes where Jesus says, you know, blessed are you if you live a certain way, right? If you, blessed are you if you are meek. Blessed are the gentle. What he's saying is he's speaking of a happiness of heart. And happiness, this type of happiness, is actually not the sort of fleeting happiness we think about in our culture, where we smile at 1 p.m. and something happens that, that turns our face into a frown at 3. Happiness in blessing is very different. It's sort of a, it's a deep-seated joy. It's a, a confidence and stability to have an, an emotional stability and a spiritual stability in life when the circumstances are out of sorts. And so what he's saying here is, if you understand belief in the way that I'm saying it, it leads you to a well of happiness. But it's a happiness that cannot be robbed from you unless you actually cede that authority to somebody or something. In both cases, the Beatitudes in here, it's an admonition declaring that when a person meets the conditions of the blessing, happiness will follow. And the condition Jesus is talking about here is when we believe in him without seeing. What he says is you'll find a different type of happiness. When you can have faith in me the way I'm saying here, you're going to find that your heart is going to be filled up. And this comes right on the heels of Thomas obeying Jesus' command to stop doubting and start believing. And clearly, his belief begins to change his life posture almost instantaneously. And so on one level, the word blessing here simply declares that a person finds happiness when they believe in Christ. However, that's not all it declares. Because in Scripture and in this text, God is not just concerned with us seeking blessing from him. That'll lead you down a faith road that you don't want to go. He's deeply concerned with us understanding the root of why we should be happy. Why we should want to be blessed. Why we should believe in the ways that Jesus says here. Because you can't experience the fullness of God's blessing until you do. You'll have a partial blessing. If every time in your life you, need, you had to demand something of Jesus for you to believe in him, think about how, how odd that relationship would be. Think about your earthly relationships. If the only time you trusted a spouse or a child or a best friend or whatever was when you said, I'll believe you are my best friend, I'll believe you are my wife, I'll believe you are my child, if you do this for me, we would say that that would lead to an incredibly unhealthy relational dynamic, right? Now, that doesn't mean we can't ask that of our peers and our friends and our spouses, but it means that shouldn't be the norm. The norm should be that there's a general trust in that person, that they're going to be those things for us or do those things for us even when they don't. And in the earthly perspective, when, we, when we, we want them to do it, but we have the courage to bring it up when they don't do it. The same is sort of true with God. We want to have a posture of trust with him. 
Because when we believe in Jesus, it means we've recognized in the depths of our hearts that he's unconditionally accepted us. That's the blessing. We're no longer searching or scratching out an identity in this earth. We start pressing into the reality of who God says he is. And one of the things the cross and the resurrection shows us is that he has made a way for us to be accepted. The reason Jesus tells Thomas to stop doubting and start believing is because he wants him to experience the genuine happiness that comes when a person chooses to dwell and the life-changing love the cross and the resurrection shows us. It provides us the presence of our Father in heaven. And that is a happiness that Jesus had to die for us to have. That's why it's much more than a fleeting emotion or a mental thought or a deed with our hands. It certainly can be those things, but this type of love sort of drives those things. And so you see the blessing Jesus gives us here is marked with a, a new covenant, we could even say, a new kind of relationship. That's what verse 29 teaches us. This statement marked the beginning of a new kind of relationship that we have with God. And it's signified in that book, of the, it's called the New Covenant, the New Testament. It's the second half of your Bible. Recorded in the pages of that testament are some pretty amazing things. And the thing I want to say about this is that when we look at this passage, we're often tempted to see Jesus as harshly rebuking Thomas for needing, needing to see before he believed. We sort of feel that this is like a correction. And I guess in its root form it is. But the proper way to see this is, remember, Jesus is patient. This is a new way for, even for them to believe. They've just physically been with him for a long time. And they're trying to figure out now what life looks like post-resurrection. I think it's better to say that what's happening here, and more accurate to say, is that Thomas's believing is actually becoming a teachable moment for Jesus. I don't know that there's as much rebuke here as much as there is him beginning to set the precedent for the way he should believe and the way future generations like you and I should believe. He's saying, here's how faith looks now. It won't be like it was because in about 40 days, I'm going to be in heaven. It'll never be like that again until he returns. He's setting the new precedent. He's saying, you will find a happiness of heart when you examine what I've already done on the cross, when you believe in what I've done, when you've trusted my resurrection and how it's shaped the world in your life since. And this, my friends, is the era of the church. This is what every day of every day in our lives looks like when we pursue Jesus. We're given a new way to believe, a new chance to experience God's precedent, precedent, uh, presence excuse me, in an unprecedented way. And even though we no longer have the ability to put our hands in his nail-scarred hands like Thomas did, what he says is that what he provides us is how we end. What he gives us is a better option. He says it's better that you actually not believe like Thomas did. There's a way you can have my, my presence in your life more fully. So the two hallmarks of these, this new way to believe, this new covenant, are that God has now called us to see him through his scripture and his Holy Spirit. He's given us a, uh, his word as a rudder to know him, and he's given us his spirit in the, as the, uh, it's the primary way we experience him. He takes this truth and etches it into our hearts through the power of his spirit. God the Father is working in heaven in these ways. The spirit of his son Christ through the power of his teachings is truth. This is really important, so please don't miss this. If you're here seeking evidence to believe, or you're a Christian demanding Jesus show himself to you in some way or form, you have to know that Jesus is not, uh, he's not abandoned you. If you're at this place where you're saying, man, this all sounds good, but I don't feel that way, according to Jesus, if you cannot see in your life right now that God is present from, or for you, or you believe he's hiding from you, or you think he's left you, it's because you're looking for him in the wrong places. Whether you're a Christian or a seeker, the primary way that God has chosen to reveal himself to you is no longer through Jesus becoming flesh and showing up. That's already happened. Now he's revealing himself to you through the scripture. He's talking to you through his word and the presence of his Holy Spirit is permanently in you if you're in Christ. 
That's pretty powerful stuff. You don't just have to hope Jesus is in the room you're in anymore like the disciples did. Now he's in you permanently. And he's speaking his truth from his word in your ears and your heart permanently. You don't have to touch him anymore because the promise of the cross is Jesus touches us. He never untouches us. He's in us permanently. And so the key to experiencing this blessing is not as, the way you believe the promise, let me say it this way, is to retrain your heart, to embrace the terms of the covenant. That's what's happening with Thomas. Jesus has offered him, we might even say, a new set of terms. And Thomas is one of the first people to actually hear them. And so here's a closing thought to meditate on if you're a Christian who does not read the scripture or does not rely on the power of God's spirit to work in your life. Or maybe you're saying like, I don't even understand how the Holy Spirit works. If you have a void in your life in these two areas, I want to leave you with this. I wonder at times if there's a connection between the abundance of what seems to be seemingly powerless expressions of modern Christianity in people's lives. You got folks writing about the American church is dead. None of us believe that, but you got people writing that stuff. I wonder if there's some connection points here. I wonder if sometimes the lifeless expressions we see of faith, maybe there's a connection there to the growing trend of biblical illiteracy amongst the Christian community. Maybe there's, there's something to the fact that a lot of people have thoughts and ideas about that way it should work, God's kingdom, the church, but oftentimes they're disconnected from the way Jesus actually said it should work. I wonder if there's something to the fact that a lot of Christians really declare with their mouths that the resurrection happened and that that power is available to them. Yet the week after Easter, they, they're sort of right back into the rut. They have verbalized this power, but they've yet to experience it, God's life-changing power in their heart. Rather than seeing themselves as disciples given an authority to bring truth to the world, living in the power of the Holy Spirit, they suffer under the relentless weight of sin. They can't overcome this stuff. They're, they're wrecked by their world and their circumstances. They are driven by temporal things, important things. Many of the temporal things in our lives are important, but keep in mind they are temporal. The relentless weight of these things snuff the life out of them. Trials destroy them, and it's at times sort of like they are spiritually dried up. And what's happening here is they're trading this abundant life Jesus has for them. It's at their fingertips for survival. That's what it becomes. They've traded joy for sorrow and trust for cynicism. They no longer remember a past when their life was defined by stability in the promises of Jesus. This day, they're a small boat in a big ocean, battered by the waves. I wonder if there's a correlation here between the growing number of Christians who, for whatever reason, they've disconnected themselves from the presence of God because they're out of the Scripture, consequently disconnecting themselves from the reality of who God's Holy Spirit is. And as a result, they, they benevolently are becoming ignorant of Jesus and the power that he has in their life. And it's just sort of fading away. And what God says here is if you are there or you know people that are there, that's not what he wants for your life. That powerless form of Christianity is not what he went to the cross for and overcame the grave for. There has to be a connection here. And I want to say that this is a connection that can be easily fixed by getting into the word and by really asking God to work in ways that his Holy Spirit is real to you. It's asking God to, you know, to take the defeat and the discouragement at times in our lives. If the energy of Easter has left you, knowing that God can transform those things. Because he's already said the energy from the Holy Weeks might leave. You know, after Christmas, we see the same thing. But the presence of Jesus does not. Much like Christmas, the holiday ends. But what it did for the Christian community just began. The birth of Jesus changed us forever. We shouldn't forget about that. And his death and resurrection are just another chapter in that great story. So be in the word. Get in the word. And ask the Holy Spirit to write these truths on your heart. Because the reality of what we've talked about today is that doubt is very real for people. And the blessing of belief can be equally as real.
That's where Jesus' grace leads Thomas. He shepherds his heart to belief. And I promise you, if you get in the scripture, you'll find the same thing. The power of Jesus' words, his teachings, his truths, they will shepherd your heart to belief, to renewed, a renewed vigor in your life about his promises. That's where his words lead us. And I hope you will take the chance in asking him to lead you to that place today. So if you're struggling with trusting Jesus for your salvation for the first time, or you believe in Jesus, but you just don't think that he can restore the joy and the hope to your heart or someone in your life that you're dealing, this, dealing with this in, I want you to challenge the doubt. That's what I said last week. Start trusting. Ask God what it would be like to doubt the doubt. Ask God what it would be like to place the scalpel of skepticism on your doubt. In the same way, so many people apply this to Jesus, who he said he is and what he did. And I'll leave you with this verse, 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9. Peter tells us this. He just summarizes everything I've said today in this verse. And I want to leave you with this this morning before we have response. He says, though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What he's saying here is that a great many people don't see Jesus the way Thomas did, but they have this inexpressible, indescribable connection to him. And that is a reality. That is an evidence that you are in Jesus and that God is constantly working in your life to make you more like him. And so I pray if doubt is what you came into this room with, Peter's words are what you would leave with. Pray with me.